Enjoy, enjoy, folks. Welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace, high above 3773s Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live, so you can download our app to your smartphone and stream all of our live local programming, including the Jake Feinberg Show. And can't thank you enough for making this part of your day today. And uh, even though I've only been connected with this cat for maybe a few weeks now, it seems like we're old friends Going into set number three here with a legendary bass player, a guy who stays extremely humble and uh, actually prefers to be off the grid. But uh, for a period of time in our musical history, there was nobody who was creating vocabulary with his apparatus more than my guest, Ray Neapolitan. Welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Jake, good to be back. Uh, <laughs> great to be back. How, um, you know... With the upright bass, I just wanted you to talk when you were playing it consistently, maybe even now, um, wh- how humbling an instrument it is when you don't practice. People talk to me about, bass players talk to me about, upright bass players, if you don't practice the upright, uh, it will humble you dearly. And I just wanted to know, even today, I'm not sure how much you practice, but when you were really cranking, how much you woodshedded to keep your chops and uh and and your feel together well with the bass you know it's it's such a physical instrument that you had to keep it up you had to keep your hands together uh you know your shoulders there's all kinds of things that that could be affected if you're playing improperly or not playing at all Uh, you know so you had to practice every day uh you know let alone first of all your hands and calluses and and you know in in those days you, you you had to protect your hands you know you couldn't put them in water for too long you couldn't do this and that uh, to to soften up those calluses and if if they if you overplayed one night or so where you went down and got some blood blisters going again you know it was uh, it was just unbearable. Oh. But, but constant practice and not overplaying, you know, seemed to be the way to go, uh, for me anyway, uh, that sustained calluses. And, you know, only to this day I'm starting to feel, you know, I've been very lucky with health, but I'm starting to feel, you know, little aches and pains in my wrists and hands from, from those days. And... Now that I haven't played the big bass uh, hardly at all recent in recent years, you know I'm fearful <laughs> of yeah. trying to attempt. Yeah. You know, uh, 
uh, to, to attempt it again, you know, because uh, you're just not there. You've got to put the time in. There's, there's just no way around it. Can you talk and about that? I know this is important. Though, the fear, though, the 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 over that that fear. This is not the first time that you've. I mean, you you're talking about not picking it up in a while, but I mean, there have been times where you were in Chicago or uh, even in L.A. I'm sure where you're like that thing was sitting against the wall. You're like, I got to freaking practice, man. I mean, can you talk about overcoming and pushing and then ultimately, I don't want to say conquering, but you know, getting it together. I mean, I think that yeah. fear is really, uh, it just, to me, it's like, sometimes you just, it just, the, the blisters and the pain, that's a different deal. I'm just talking about feeling confident on that apparatus of all instruments. I think the upright right. might be the most humbling one, but can you talk about a time when you really well push yourself? Fear is a good motivator. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it know, is in all phases. To get you at it. And, and and really, you know, you have to set up some sort of schedule, you know, when you're playing, uh, even if you're doing a lot of work during the day, if you're doing sessions or going to rehearsals, uh, on top of that, you know, you had to, you know, to keep yourself together, you still practice, even though you're playing a lot, um, you know, especially live gigs, that's where you would blow it. I mean, you would never really you know, hurt yourself sort of in a session because of the sound is much better and you can hear yourself. Uh, and that was a big thing as well is for bass players that they could never hear themselves well enough. So therefore you start overplaying to try to hear yourself. Exactly. Uh, or, you know, you're playing consistently and the horn players are taking, you know, five choruses a piece and you're still playing. And then here comes the bass solo and everybody stops playing, you know? So it would be so frustrating to me at that point, but yeah, that's, you know, you're always in motion. So you better have your hands together. You better have control of the instrument you better know, you know, the, the better fingerings and, and, and harmonically where you're going and how you're going to get there. And you shouldn't even be able to think of that. That should be automatic, you know. Uh, but, yes, you would have to prepare, you know, uh, uh, work on things so you don't blow your hands out. Uh, uh, you know, you would try to do some exercises, uh, I, re I remember I was working with Mose Allison back that time, and hmm. and he used to stay. We were at Shelley's, and and he would always stay down at the beach. And what he would love to do is just put his hands in the wet sand and just work his hands in the wet sand. Wow. And it, it was it was therapeutic for him, you know. Uh, and I always remembered that and. Um, but, I mean, would, would moisture, well, but, I mean, for a pianist, that, that's okay for, the, like, to have, because um, I would assume, you said you didn't want to keep, as a bass player, you didn't want to keep your hands in the water too long, but that, that moist. Yeah, well, you know, it, not as much for a piano player, for sure, you know, but but for bass, you know, I mean, it's not like you completely stop, stop putting your hands in water. <laughs> I mean, it's only... <laughs> 
Well, maybe there was some of the cats would do that. No, but I mean, did you actually like? But, did you did you wind up on the on the bandstand like blood like a, with a blood blister that exploded one night and you were like bloodied oh, up? Oh, of course. I, of, yeah, I, all of us did. You know, every bass player has gone through that. You know, where where all of a sudden you had to play with one finger because the other finger was just messed up. Oh. You know, and just killing you. Or if you put on tape. You know, you would try to put on tape and baby it, and then the tape would would get sticky and or come off. And there was just, it was a major thing. Everybody was, you know, protecting their hands or, or uh, not getting into that where you do have the blood blisters and trying to get back, you know, to a solid foundation on your fingers. Uh, it, it's um, not so much the left hand would never bother you, you know, I mean, maybe ache or something, but, uh, you know, your your fretting hand would was never really the, that kind of physical problem. I mean, obviously technique and all that would enter into it, but uh, or a medical problem, I should say. Um, uh, I... Yeah, we would think about it all the time. You put salt you know, get a mixture of the salt and a very little bit of water, and it would dry it up. Oh, uh, that's like, I mean, where, where the, is that where the expression throw salt in the wound? I mean, that must have been painful. <laughs> God. No, it didn't really hurt. Yeah, you know, yeah. But, but it, it, it's just the idea that, you know, we would every, try everything possible, you know. I want to read you this. I just, I've uh, been on a, I've been on a, I've been ripping it up since we last talked. I just talked to um, bass player, you Gordon Edwards, he was in Stuff. Uh-huh. All right, and he yeah, said this is a sure. it was kind of cathartic for me. I want you to just listen to this. He said um I asked him the question. I think we I've asked you that question about any note can be the one. And he said um he said I feel the one and everybody feels the one. Black people, mm-hmm. black people, we clap on 2 and 4. And when I started working with the country guys, they would clap on 1 and 3. <laughs> that can tell you right there that any note can be the one. White people look funny when they dance. That's what he said. And and when Jamerson said any note can be the one, all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's what he meant. I mean, there was a discernible, you know, black people clap on two and four, white people clap on one and three. So any note can be the one. Hmm. You, you take that. You, you, well, the, you got a voicemail there if you want to take that. But I'm just, I want you to just riff on the idea. Like, especially we, we, we entered in with um, a track off uh, Journey to Bliss, this unbelievable microtonal blues band album. Emil Richards is the leader, Neapolitan on bass, Porcaro on drums. And it was odd metered. And you were still, you, you could still, I think more than anything else, though, it's just, did you always. When I, what Gordon was talking about, whether it was Jamerson or Chuck Rainey himself, no matter what, you could always hear the melody in their bass playing. It, you could always recognize the melody. And I wanted to know if that, how important that is and how you developed that, if that was always something that you were conscious of before, because some of the stuff you did with Emil is absolute i mean you it, it could be a mess but it really sounds great mainly because the rhythm section's holding it together and you can hear the melody well you know as far as, as those time things holding it together where's the one um uh, you know there's that clave that goes through it no matter what it is how you're breaking up the five how you're breaking up seven 
uh, and, and, you know, that is what's going through your head uh, as a basis. You know, if you're playing nine, eight in sets of threes, you know, you, you always hear that, you know, the, I mean, how they would, the Indians would, would, would count, would count, would be, uh, they would break it up like uh, if they go, uh, let's see. In seven, they would go taka 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 taka. So that's what you would be hearing, you know. And then you know you you either you're playing on each of those downbeats of the pattern, or as you you know as it starts floating a little bit, you start feeling it. You could start removing yourself from that pattern, but still that that clave is in your head. Um, and uh, I think more more than the melody, because sometimes the melodies were so abstract. You know, <laughs> that's true. That movies. is exact. So when you say the clave, that I mean that I automatically think of Afro-Cuban music. But you say well, that. Well, yeah. Well, that's go ahead. Exactly. I mean, that's how the Latin bands play. You know, you know, the the guy playing the clave. That, you know, uh, and it's similar to Indian music right, where, right. you know, you start playing, they give you one of the simplest instruments, uh, you know, playing a tambura or playing, you know, where it's just a drone, but you know where the beats are. Then once you have that under your hand, they put you into another instrument that has a little more dimension to it. You know, so, um, yeah, you've got to have that, that, that time feeling in your head. Or even in four four, you know, rock and roll, you know, every you got to hear that two and four, you know, you got to hear that snare popping, and that keeps your place, you know, and and then as that, you know, as you get so comfortable with that, then you could start moving that a little bit, pushing the two and four, or you know, or or just playing on four, not playing the two, uh, that pushes it into one, um, you know, there's a lot of things like that 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 holds your uh, your place, you know, and, and at, at the same time, it's giving you some freedom. Talking to Ray Neapolitan here, he's obviously trying to uh, decipher uh, so, some of my questions. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I just, I'm curious about, like, nowadays you have, uh, like, an electric bass. Do you find yourself practicing that a lot, or, or is it really something that you can just pick up when you have a gig and you know maybe what was your here's the here's the better question uh when you were in Amel's bands or any bands like uh, like that were consistent what was your take on the r word uh, rehearsal some people look at that as a, as a bad word because they think that if you rehearse too much then you strip all the soul out of the tune or the opportunities for improvisation if everybody's anticipating what's coming next and was there a band where you guys never any any band you had where you, I mean obviously you rehearse new material, but I mean where you really made it a point to say we're just going to get up, we know it, and we're going to do it differently every time on the bandstand. So you didn't rehearse that much. Well, that's a good question. Um, there's a lot of parts to that. Yeah, we you know I never mind rehearsing you know when the material was difficult and uh and we were making progress at at, at the rehearsals uh leading to something bigger you know uh, uh trying to improve or or make us freer in what we're doing 
uh, now on other bands where maybe they weren't as good or uh, the players weren't on the same level where there's just silly mistakes over and over again, uh, uh, then you'd go, you know, this is useless. You know, let's just go in and play. Uh, uh, then there were those bands where the, uh, musicians that you played with all the time in different situations when you came together and played, and you were just playing, you know, material that or, or songs that you did know uh, already and get freer on that. Uh, but um, what was the first was I, that was I, that Danny Long? When was the first opportunity when that happened? Was that Danny Long, or was that when you got to the West Coast? Um, well, mainly, well, in Chicago as well, you know, because there was always, uh, you know, it was all you were never with one band. I mean, maybe you were. You always played with this one band whenever they worked, but there was many other things you were doing or cultivating at the same time. Uh, you know, and that's when you would get into where, you know, you go, what am I doing here? You know, <laughs> we're not making any progress. Right. It's no fun. Right. Uh, uh, but, you know, not, uh, and as far as just going in there with no, with nothing on paper, nothing, and just play, um, you know, we did, we did that briefly at a, in a time period there in the late 60s, maybe. Um, with all the freedom things, with, as we spoke earlier, just have some sort of uh, structure that you're playing, uh, playing to whether it's harmonic or or or, or time-wise. Uh, you know, that would be the only time you would be completely free. I was never involved in anything that was, you know, just totally free. When when you like, okay, so with because I always liked I just liked when you were in a comfortable setting with guys that you got along with personally off on and off the bandstand. Um, were you able to? Um, I mean, with like like if you were playing live, I mean, was with Amos tunes like once you got used to them, was it the type of thing where? you had your chops together and you didn't necessarily have to, even if you took a, a couple of weeks off or a month off, you could show up at Dante's or wherever you were playing and, and pull it off. I mean, I mean, that's that, that, that material smokes it, it, and it's really good and it's tight and it's live. But if, if, if you don't, if you don't know what you're doing, it's going to sound like a mess, but it just also doesn't sound overly rehearsed. It sounds like there's a lot of improv going on on the fly. And I'm just what I'm trying to get what I'm trying to get at is just the formula trip. I have a really hard time with my generation. We we have all the tools that kind of that, that lead towards perfection, um, and so people get way too caught up in the sound, as opposed to actually just you know playing transcendent music. Right. You know, and that and that uh, you know. So so just riff on that any way you want. You know, we. Um... We rehearsed, but not a lot, you know, I mean, we, with, with the total group, and we would have, you know, like Don Elsie would have section rehearsals or rhythm section rehearsals with other bands. Um, but we could, you know, just say, okay, we got, we got a gig next week where nobody can rehearse, uh, you know, boom, it was fine. Uh, 
um, you know, with a lot of bands, you know, once once you really sort of understand the book, um, you know, you, you don't really need lengthy rehearsals or, you know, it would be a sound check, really. Right. Uh, from then on, you know, and then if there was new material, then we would call another full group rehearsal. Uh, I'm just trying to think of other other bands. Well, what about uh, like when was the first time you started playing with uh, the uh, Salt of the Earth, John Morell? Uh, well, I played through with John for you know all through the years since you know 30, 40 years. I mean, we did sessions together and like we, you were at Shelley's we, in a band together. Like, would you play at Shelley's a lot? No, I I didn't play play with Shelley. No, but just uh, any studio thing, some TV things, whatever they were. We, he, uh, there would be uh, a lot of uh, bands <laughs> where, where John would be in, in the band, you know, uh, whether they were big bands or, or uh, smaller groups, he would be part of it. Um, but not until, you know, recently, you know, then I, I lost contact with John for, for many years. And, and uh, upon, uh, uh, when I back to LA uh, in 2014, I you know just ran into John and said, "Hey, let's play." Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, you know, it's so great, it's man. Like it's we, so great. We, but we I mean, never left. Yeah. I mean, you know. it's so much is going through my head. I wanted to. I, this was uh, from an interview with Keltner, and I want to see if you can put yourself back and remember where you were at at this time. He said. I was playing with Charlie Smalls at the time. He was the guy who wrote The Wiz. At that time, he was just a brother who lived in North Hollywood. We had a couple of great mm -hmm. singers and a bass player, and the bass player was the great Wilton Felder, who I knew as the saxophone player with the Crusaders. Right. He made me feel like I was right in the right place. One of the gigs was at the Daisy Club in Beverly Hills. It would seat various different movie stars of the day. People would come in after dinner to dance or hang out. One night we were playing, and we took a break like we always did. <clears throat> During the break, I hung about. At one point, I looked at my watch, and I'm trying to figure out how come we're not getting back on the bandstand. I went to Wilton, who was sitting in the back reading his Bible, and he was a very devout man. I said, Wilton, what do you suppose is going on here? He said, I don't know, but everyone seems to be huddled up in the coat room. I went up there, and everyone was saying that Robert Kennedy had just been shot at the Ambassador Hotel. His entourage was slated to come by the Daisy and relax after that engagement. Everybody was freaking crazy. So crazy, I can't remember what I did the rest of the night, of that evening. And what was even crazier, so anyway, they were playing this gig, and, and Kennedy's entourage was supposed to come to the Daisy Club, but that was the night he got shot. What was even crazy, and I think the guy's name was Sirhan Sirhan. And I think what's even crazier mm -hmm. is that Kelter said that when he saw the picture in the newspaper and or TV of Sirhan, Sirhan, he realized that the health food store that he had been going into to get whatever health food was available in 1967 or 68, he recognized Sirhan, Sirhan as, a, as one of the guys who worked in that health food market. He saw that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you know I'm in. The, I've been, you know I've been. This is the, this is, you're going to the shrink with Jake. But we're going deep into history here. <laughs> But do you, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, so that was the night of the assassination. Um, but literally in that period of time, Coltrane died. Uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Um, uh, ML King was assassinated. But where, were there any times where you were on the bandstand when there was some kind of, you know, something 
like a macro thing that happened that was just jarring that you don't even really remember what happened. I mean, Kellner has no memory of what happened after he heard that news of that night. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's hard. I know. I mean, I can't yeah. remember any. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of incidents, but nothing as, as you know, wow. Yeah, that, that would be heavy. Um, did it? Did I, that? Did that I, hurt? I, did I, that hurt? I mean, I'm not saying I don't want to say the morale of the record industry, but looking back on it, I mean, those guys were extracted; their souls were extracted from this earth so brutally. And I just wonder what you guys were feeling at that time, aside from the obvious, you know, whether you were a fan or not, you know, the the sort of devastation. But you know, sort of the 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 toll it took on our culture. Uh, a lot. I remember talking to great pianist from the East Coast, Steve Kuhn, who played with Pete LaRocca mm-hmm. and a bunch of cats. And he said that, there, you know, there was a noticeable interplay between all musicians of all different backgrounds and, and, and races and all this stuff. And then <clears throat> once these assassinations took place and, and there was a noticeable divide between black and white after that. He, he noticed it very clearly just in the sense of like camaraderie people, guys would not be embracing black and white would not be embracing each other. Um, as, as opposed to before in the early sixties, it was very much a lot of love. I just wondered what you thought about that time. It seems like, you know, we're going through, uh, our own insanity now, but, um, where where were you at at that time, or do you remember any of those incidents that stand out, or where you were at that time? Uh, yeah, I was in L.A. at that time, and uh, all, what I do remember is the sense of of fear or the sense of uh, unsettling. You know, it was like everything is falling apart at that time, and uh, and even like during the LA fires, you know, and the riots right. and all that, there was a, a, a distinct separation for a long time. Everybody, you know, of the general public, it, it seems, but, but the musicians, I, I never felt that from the musicians, you know, a separation or, uh, any kind of, you know, uh, pulling away from the black community. Uh, well, we didn't go in into the community as much for a long time after that. But uh, were, were you? I, I, I'm I, curious brought, though. Were you? Were you? Because the other thing about Keltner was that he was driving into South South Central to play at Memory Lane during the the riots. I mean, I did you have? I know that. Did you have gigs uh, in the in the black? I know we did, but I wasn't. It wasn't in in the black community. Uh. You know, in and out, we would play the you know different clubs there, but uh, not at that time. In fact, as I, I the the year now was it? I want to say it was sixty seven. What? Which so, one? Uh, yeah, wow. What are you talking about? The, what are you talking right. about? Ken, Ken, you remember Bobby Kennedy? What year? Yeah, I think I'm 67. I can look it up, but I, I mean, Coltrane died that year too. But anyway, that was not an assassination. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you, you know, uh, yeah. At that time, uh, in fact, I was. It was the late 66. I was with Carmen McRae. Wow. Um, 
uh, I went out, I went with her in late 66 into that time period. And, and yeah, see, I, I, I never felt any kind of separation or, or division at all, um, during that time period. <clears throat> but there was this blanket of fear and anxiety that went, went over everyone, you know, um, um, was it? I mean, I was the, was, no, yeah. I mean, this is really fascinating. Well, first of all, uh, June 6, 68 is when he was assassinated. So that, that was, yeah, it was nineteen sixty-eight. Um, could you folk? I mean, today the fears in my mind uh, are over freedom of the press, uh, separation of church and state. Uh, autocracy. I mean, there's evident fears, anxieties that I have about where we're headed uh, as a society. Could you be specific about the fears that you had? Or was it just that everything had been somewhat open and you felt like the sky was the limit and this was never going to end and this, this was just a huge punch in the gut? Or was there some kind of sort of nefarious fear that was more specific that you could point to? No, uh, you know, it just, it, uh, it, it's similar to, 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 to today. Really? Actually. Really? You know, you, 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 I mean, maybe not as specified, on, uh, uh, but it's, it's very much like it is, to, is uh, you feel today, but it seems like we're getting used to it today. Back then it was like, oh my, this is the first time that any of this stuff really started happening in the United States. Right, right, right. You know, where you thought like, oh my God, you know, this is, this is the United States and this is going on. Uh, yeah, this could and, never happen here. But, this could never happen here. Yeah, yeah I dig, I dig. It could never happen. The, the, the vision of, of, of the communities and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, and it, it's, it's very much like getting to that today, you know, where every day is, is another news event and, and um, it's just bizarre. Well, you, you literally now for the first time have inmates in the white, you have, you have inmates in the asi- running the asylum pretty much. I mean, it's really, I mean, <laughs> exactly I, right. I mean it's like, it, it, I mean, you, you, you know, the, it used to be just a bunch of carnival barkers, but, uh, and they had some success, but now yeah. they're literally in the gr- they're they're the commander in chief, you know. And it's like I, you yeah. know, you know, it's it's, um. So so you, you know, know Keltner was reeling from that. I mean, with 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 Carmen, though, like I think that's the point is that uh, you know, music. Music is one of the only things that transcends all of that crap, and I just. Think it really does. It really does, and that's why there was no separation with the musicians because, because of that level of of trust and magic that occurs in music. If you can play and it feels good, then that's kind of all that matters. That's and, right. You're you know. accepted. Right. Right. And and, and and that's the yeah. thing. I remember talking to a percussionist that was with Art Blakey, and he said, "You know, man, through all our hard times, through and again, that also dovetailed all those things dovetailed with the Vietnam War." And even before that, mm-hmm. even in the 50s, Korean War, you know, in the 40s and World War II, the guy, what he was saying to me was, he goes, in through all those really hard times, the music was always salvation. It was such good, there was such good music to get people through those times. 
And I think it's a direct correlation that we're stuck in a rut now because of where music has evolved or devolved or become stuck in some ways. And I think that there's a direct correlation to why we're suffering because we don't have that kind of vibrancy that was just pulsating through the... I just feel like you guys were also... You probably didn't even put it in your in your conscious mind, but you were just looking to be as creative and spontaneous as possible as, as a way of... That was your way of, of uh, I don't want to say protesting, but advocating. Absolutely right. Uh, I'm just thinking now, the only other time that it was a, a dramatic experience uh, was when I was with, with, with Joe Cocker. We were in New York City mm-hmm. during 9-11. Oh. Uh, and, and Wow. Uh, I, you know, you, I remember this. I get chills when I think about it every time. But uh, we were, <laughs> of all things, we were staying at the Trump Hotel there, you know, in Columbus. Get out of here. Or, Are you kidding me? You know, right oh, that is, I, the Park. irony is so rich. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, and, you know, I remember, you know, that uh, I think I, I was up early and uh, I went just for a walk and it came back around I think it was 8.30 or something and just walking into a hotel and all this commotion started and um, uh, then all hell broke out. I think it happened around 9.30 or something The like first that. plane, and, the f- yeah, and, no, what's funny is uh, Neapolitan and I were only 100 and something miles. I was sleeping in my bed in Stony Brook, Long Island, uh, unemployed and mm-hmm. uh, uh, still wallowing in my early 20s, but so you went out for an early morning walk, and that and that Trump Tower is down in, in Wall Street, or is it more like down in the in the in down? Where is Columbus than that area? You know, right at Central Park uh, West. It's, it's right there in, in the curve. Okay, so you were not down in Wall Street, but no, it, no, it, 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 you got in the hotel, and and all hell broke loose. And you know, they then all the they blocked off all the streets. They you know the street. Uh, uh, was a, a pathway then for ambulances and and fire trucks and so forth and this everything shut down you know and I'm trying to reach my wife in LA and everything you couldn't no make signal any calls. nothing no yeah uh, you know and part of the uh, uh, we had a show that night in New Jersey and that was canceled and and it was just like you know anyway it was a couple of days of we couldn't get out of there for three days and, and it, that night uh, maybe you remember i mean there was there was nothing going on in new york i mean there was no no black cars no taxis no nothing <laughs> nothing, uh, nothing. I, I, I think the only place was open was uh the Carnegie Deli, I think it was. was I, the I mean, if there was going to be one place, grab some, grab, grab some pastrami and and you know, I mean, get some exactly. matzo ball soup. You're all set, man. Or, but that was the only time I can something that really, you know, shook me for sure was that that event. Did did you um, was the entire tour canceled, or did you wind up being able to get back? No. We we canceled that that show was canceled and we played uh, four nights later uh, in Boston and that was just a wonderful uh, emotional experience with can you know the candlelight thing and and uh, everybody was ready for some music that's for sure that's uh, 
That's a, I mean, how was? Do you remember how it affected guys in the band or Cocker specifically? I mean, was it because that was that, that's something that's. I mean, well, that, everybody a, was just traumatized, yeah. you know, really, because then uh, the band then got they stand. Uh, most of the guys were stayed in New Jersey, uh, but Joe and I were 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 in, in you know at at the Trump Hotel there, and <laughs> that night, uh, and as the wind shifted, you know, all the smoke was coming. Uh, coming uptown and, and it, it was it was just an ominous feeling ash all over the place yeah yeah, um, yeah. everyone trying to, to to get out of the city and wondering what is next waiting to hear to hear what the government had to say and uh, and our responses and all that um, and then the, the the visuals of that were, were traumatic you know I mean uh, um it affects you know it really affects it to this day uh i wanted to ask you about it's so weird after our first or i think our first interview i i found this record and i was like and i'm like i i'm gonna ask uh neapolitan about this cat because i have a feeling he played with don ellis and i just wasn't sure this guy uh john rodby r-o-b-r-o-d yeah. okay what was he i found this classical record on this label called crystal records from 73 and it's like this ferocious classical but it's got like this avant-garde tinge to it and i'm like i just wonder if neapolitan ever crossed well, paths with this cat though there's two now john rod rodby rodby piano player. yes i don't i don't think he ever played with don it john, says on the liner notes john. that he was played with don uh, anyway, wow, and, that's amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll take a photo yeah, of it later. John, you know, yeah. here's a funny story about that. Yeah. He was a musical conductor for, uh, you know, on uh, what's the name? Uh, on a morning show that we, you know, I would sub all the time with him, and he, he's a great writer and he's a, a beautiful arranger and a wonderful pianist for sure. Um, he, he was a musical conductor for the Dinah Shore morning show. Oh, my God, I love that. <laughs> how strange these things are, you know, and, and the versatility of a lot of people. Uh, uh, but, yeah, that's John Rodby, yeah. It's R-O-D-B-Y. R-O-D-B-Y. I'm telling you, this album on Crystal yeah. Records from 73 is, I'm going to take a photo of where his, because when I saw it, I look on the back and I'm like, this doesn't look like your kind of square classical record. And then I look on the back and I see his, and he, and it clearly says Don Ellis. And I'm like, wow, I wonder if, if that ever, I mean, I, yeah, I don't remember that. What's in it? What was the name of that record? I'm going to get it. I, I have to go home and look at yeah. it and I'm going to take some pictures yeah. of it for you. The, the other thing was like, I mean, like, I mean, some of these cats were literally, uh, I mean, like, I was talking to David T. Walker. For all I know, I mean, Cannonball Adderley had his own show for a while. He had a show on TV uh, with, like, I'm just trying to find the excerpt here, but it's like, it's like, I mean, musicians were held. Here it is. He goes, uh, David T. said uh, uh, Cannon was uh, setting up a television show here in L.A. It was, a, it was in the time slot of Saturday Night Live before Saturday Night Live. And he had a gift for words. If you heard him introduce a song from the stage, you could tell he had a love for etymology. Uh, he wanted me to be to be in this quintet he was putting together for the show. 
The show only lasted one season. Oscar Brashear was on trumpet, Jim Hewart was on bass, and John Guerin played drums. I guess more to the point, do you want to just kind of talk? I, I, it, the, the Gong Show, uh, you know, Sywell kept talking about that. Could you just give a, a, like a, the legacy of that, wh- what it was about, and how, what kind of role, what, what kind of setup there was as it related to the music? Well, the Gong Show. Jake, what can I tell you? Well, we're, no, we're just getting uh, over the fifty percent uh, mark now. So you go, you take this wherever you want. Uh, well, you know, I get a call. We're starting up a show, Chuck Barris. Uh, uh, it's, it's kind of an odd show. They're going to have a band, the Milton Delug, with the band leader. Wow. Uh, wow. So forth and so forth. Okay, let's go see what's going on. <laughs> what year is this? So. Uh, this has got to be maybe uh, 74. Wow. Uh, wow. Maybe blank, blanking out. Uh, and I'm going, well, you know, <laughs> as a musician, I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't want this to cut into my other stuff and blah, blah, blah. So we find out they, they tape on weekends, on, on Saturday and Sunday. Do five shows on Saturday, five shows on Sunday. Well, that's sweet, you know. I had the whole week to do whatever, you know, to do sessions, play, great. whatever. Oh, great. great. Okay. Great. So we get there. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great band. You know, Mark Stevens on drums, uh, Bill Neal, uh, guitar. Wow. Uh, wow. Uh, Jay Diversus playing trumpet. Uh, I mean, we had a, it was a, a great band. Uh, and Milton was the conductor and, you know, and Milton is, is, was much older than all of us. You know, he was, I don't know if you, you're familiar with, but he was, uh, you know, from the band, the big band era, and a wonderful player, wonderful arranger. He used to do all kinds of, um, you know, different TV shows and so was forth. Was he from the same, uh, uh, same sort of generation from uh, Mancini and Riddle and those cats? Uh, older than that. Older than that. Yeah, wow, Don't, uh, Milton, man. So Mil, so you show up for this thing, and yeah, this is epic. So I and mean, did, so, yeah, this, was there a rehearsal at, at first, or they, they were like, yeah, you got five yeah, shows on you Saturday. Know, we get together and they explain what we're doing. You know, they they started to explain what this show's about, and and there was nothing really like it. You know, so you know, we get to the first bunch of shows, or the, the first show, you know, which they were going to sell. I just want to stop you right there for the audience. Explain what was why there was nothing like it beforehand. What was different about it? Well, it it was first of all Chuck Barris. Uh, right. They tried a various established uh, uh, MCs, you know, for the show, uh, and nothing worked. So Chuck, who wrote it, said, "I'm going to do it," <laughs> and Chuck is is quite a character, and. Uh, so he now is the main guy, and he's writing the show with, with with a couple other writers, and their idea was to bring on the worst acts you can find. <laughs> and then they had the panel with the dog there, and you know, uh, sort of comedians that were in town, or J.P. Morgan was there, you know, all the time, and and look, you know, just whoever was around at the time performing that would be on the panel so we started off and and we're just 
you know, going, oh, my God. You know, it was hilarious. It, it was just, you know, it was almost to the point where you had to define the line where, you know, you're not taking advantage of these poor people that were on stage. Or is this really humor, you know? And Chuck sort of made it humorous, you know, by, by when he would introduce these acts, you know, whether it was, an, you know, the joke was, you know, after one year I played every chicken act there was in the world. <laughs> you know, there was always kind of, you know, jugglers, uh, uh, you know, talking dogs. I can't even... You know, I try not to remember too much of that. But, so but, the, so the idea, the idea, they're like just so, so like like acts would come in, they would perform, and then once the gong was hit, meaning you're done, then you guys would kind of do some improv, little like funny tune, or I mean, I, I, I yeah. this is great. Yeah. You know, we we milk had all these cues. You know, the wah wah wah. Yeah, you yeah. know, all those things <laughs> that would go on. You know. Uh, uh, and then for the breaks, we'd always play jumping at the woodside. Oh, I you know, love that, it, that dude. Was... This is uh, you know what's so great. You know what's so great is that I guarantee you some uh, some of those like wow wow wow. I bet that stuff was wound up in like basketball stadiums when someone missed a free throw and then they would play that. Oh yeah, it all happened. Yeah, oh, it's so great. And then the show sold and it was so popular. Uh, but you know, we would start you know Saturday at ten o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we'd rehearse these acts, and, you know, a lot of them uh, had no musical ability, or if they did, it was, uh, you know, just so strange. Uh, and then when it came time to film, they would be in different keys, and we'd have to change keys on the spot, you know, or uh, they would drop bars. So all that came into it, where it was just constant uh, you know, you had to be on your toes because you didn't know what was going to happen there. And and then it got, uh, you know, with Chuck Barris, there was, you know, the $1.98 beauty show, the dating game, the newlywed game. Uh, we had all these shows we were doing that was all related to Chuck Barris production. Um, you know, it, it was hilarious. I used to get calls from guys all over the country, I saw you, you know, at the, the gong show the other night, you know, making us laugh. It was great. You know, so that was fun that everybody took it that way. Uh, but then it got, uh, you know, Chuck got more manic uh, and uh, the acts got stranger. And, and uh, what can I say? Uh, you know, it, it was a lot of fun and uh, um, it was a lot of aggravation at the same time, you know. This um, is, I mean, well, I mean, it, again, not everything can be, can last. I mean, it peaked at a certain point, but you guys are making so much money. It just, yeah. You to keep I mean, going. Even, even Tommy Tedesco, I mean, these were some of the highlights. He came out as a contestant in a, t a tutu oh, playing his guitar. Oh, this is great. Singing his song, I Used to Be Number One. Yeah. <laughs> and then Amo came and did the show. I mean, everybody wanted to be on the show then, you know. Did did it so, become like a point where like once it got to be a kind of a, a like a, a cult following or bigger, like you would start to get like major major musicians wanting to come on just for the sake or major personalities coming oh, on? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Huh. Everybody wanted to be on the show, you know, oh, and, and, and it was true. And, and 
um, you know, so they would pepper the acts with, you know, you know, someone like Tommy Tedesco or, or someone who could really play and, and uh, against all these other acts. And then, you know, Chuck started to use some of the, you know, myself, some of the band, the crew, uh, as these little comic events in between the acts, you know. So, I mean, it was great fun. Well, let's also be clear uh, for the audience much... at that time, uh, which is so legendary, is there were probably three to five TV channels. So late night, right. whenever this came on, uh, I mean, cats could be sitting in their beds going to sleep and they're seeing Neapolitan playing electric or upright. What were you playing? Electric? What were you playing at that time? Uh, electric, yeah. Electric, and you're and there yeah. you are in like a you know a tux or whatever. I mean, who knows? I mean, this is unbelievable. Well, it started off and then we got got where everybody was just dressing whatever they wanted and it, <laughs> it got really loose. You know, almost too loose on the show. You know, Chuck Barris really going off. I mean, he went off. He was insane. This guy. This guy was insane. Very creative. He, he really, he was a character, you know. I mean, and after, you know, Chuck was really the person who who organized syndication for TV. You know, he was the first, and that's why that was so big. You know, we, we had syndication on that. We were in, in every country, you know, maybe 30 countries in the world. Uh, wow. Do it with that show. That was the first. So no, uh, he didn't necessarily come up with the business practice. He came up with a model for a show that wound up getting syndicated. Right. Exactly. Wow. But he, he he started the model for syndication. He did. He was he key to that. Yeah. Wow. Because he had a bunch of other early on shows and so forth uh, that uh, he was he was a you know wealthy guy as he came into it and very influential. Uh, and, uh, you know, until standards and practices came into view and that they'd be sitting there, uh, you know, every day uh, or every, you know, as we would tape, making sure that everything was, was to their liking. And there was a lot of problems where we had to stop the show uh, and change things around. So, yeah, so that happened. And, and you know, then there was the, the Gong Show movie and... Uh, it just was, it became enormous, you know, then, then the movie on Chuck's life where, you know, they, Chuck, he was a genius at stirring up things, you know, like he would do shows like he would come out uh, at the beginning of the show with a cast on his arm, you know, and do the whole show with a cast on his arm. So he had a cast on his arm and he'd wear it all night. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. So he would do it, you know, he would do the whole show and then uh, pull the cast off and there was nothing wrong with him. <laughs> you know, and he would do all kinds of things like that, you know, every weekend. Um, and then he, he, this, uh, he started spinning this thing that he was a, a, an undercover agent. And uh, uh, that, that led to that movie. The Gong Show movie. I forgot to. No, this was another movie oh. uh, called uh, where someone played uh, Chuck Barris. Uh, uh, was called uh, uh, oh boy something. Uh, well, why don't, listen, I, listen, we, we, we've been uh, we've anyway. been stretching out for a minute. Let, let, why don't you just take a, a breather? Let's put in this piece of music. You can think about it, and then we'll come back and break it down. Okay, great. Thank you. 
on the Jake Feinberg Show, brought to you by the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona, Abbott Taylor Jewelers, Butch Diggs of Diggs Dental, and Craig Pretzinger of Allstate Insurance, and we can't thank them enough for their support, so we can play tunes like that for legendary character Ray Neapolitan. Um, what do you got for us? What do you think that is? Well, the uh, the movie, I finally figured out what the movie was. It's called uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Confessions of, uh, of course. You know, and that, that, that whole thing was, uh, you know, then everybody was, was really, you know, an undercover. Uh, yeah, it was a strange time. But it was a good, it was an interesting movie. Well, and, and I mean, you book, were making, was, you were probably making great dough. So it was just regardless well, of. Well, that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, whatever. It was, was it, 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 it. you know, you got to sing for your supper. And the point is that, uh, I guess, during the weeks, you could just play club gigs or, I guess, I mean, do well, whatever. yeah, we could do, yeah, you do what you usually did, you know, but it lasted, you know, four years or so, you know. Uh, it did take its toll, uh, believe me. You <laughs> I'm, know, I'm it, sure it uh, did, dude. <laughs> Did, did Stevens? I interviewed Stevens a long time. Did he was was he playing his? Uh, he invented this thing called the Mark Tree, which was like a percussive instrument. Yeah, right. Was right, he was yeah. was he was he playing like all this different percussion too, or is he just playing trap set? Yeah, he had his stuff there on the side. You know, not all of it. It got really it got it got to be a burn for you though after a while, dude. I'm getting oh, it's so true. You know, you just. Uh, <sighs> As you said, you know, you were locked in. The money was great, and it led to so many other situations. Uh, but it, it was TV, you know, and, and sooner or later you go, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> I just, you know, I, I'm looking to get to that. I've never had that feeling yet as a broadcaster. I, I'm waiting to get to that point where you're just like, I mean, this is, uh, everything's falling into place, but yet, what am I doing? You know, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. but it's, uh this this is where Neapolitan and I first connected spiritually. Was this? Well, do you remember this album? This uh, do you want to n- name that tune for the audience or or what we just played? Uh, well, yeah, it's uh, Dave Mackay and Vicky Hamilton and Vicky, yes, of course, on Impulse sixty nine. Uh, and Neapolitan has this incredible uh, sick ra- do rag of hair you had going on uh, playing the electric bass. <laughs> I'm like this cat. These guys were just from another planet. That's when I first saw this album. I, I was like, "This is a g- interesting group of characters." But I mean, that. Mm-hmm. D- what, what do you What do you take? What was 
the magic of Makai at that time. I mean, he was cooking the groove, and he had this beautiful wife. Yeah. And uh, and well, we'll just break it down. Well, uh, Dave came into town with Emil Richards and Joe Picaro. They're all from Hartford, Connecticut. Right. And uh, they've been buddies since, you know, high school. Uh, so, uh, and, and let me preface that Dave is, is, is blind. Absolutely. Uh, and Dave had such a wonderful touch such a beautiful touch on the piano and his harmonic sense was, 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 there was none better. I mean, he was just, just happening at the time. And, and Vicky as well, you know, they, they were a great couple and, and they would, um, he would be writing and performing and, and Dave never really sang that much, but, but he started singing and uh, as evident on the record. Uh, and then I believe it was Irish, Irish Schulman. Absolutely, I couldn't. Ira, yeah, but I always get confused. It was Irish. It wasn't Iris Sullivan. It was Irish Schulman. Schulman, yeah. correct. Because Iris yeah. Sullivan's a Chicago cat, I think too. He's a different Absolutely. cat. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, Joe Picaro. Yeah, and, of course. And uh, uh, various other people, as I remember. Uh, but we worked a lot of gigs together, and Dave worked uh, a lot with Emil, you know, and that's how we all were connected there. And various other, you know, kind of bands that we were, you know, most of us were, were connected with. Uh, and Dave uh, did a lot of work. He did a lot of uh, teaching at the time and uh, a lot of playing in the clubs. I also, I mean, um, I, there are sometimes I turn over records and it says arranged and produced by dave mckay he did a lot of arranging dave, he did a lot of arranging and uh, a lot of producing unbelievable. yeah absolutely unbelievable. a lot of writing guy was cooking the groove man i mean Very it's just guy. unbelievable still yeah you know before it's, it escapes my memory we we just lost uh i wanted you to talk i, I, I did you ever what is your uh, thoughts on? We just lost him. I had a chance to interview him uh, a couple of years ago. It was a contentious interview, only because I was in my typical psychological psychology fashion. I was poking and prodding <laughs> around the motherland of Africa, but we just lost Hugh Masekela, and um, you know he was starting uh, the Chizza. Uh, well, he, I mean, they, you know, he came from New York. Dizzy was. Uh, him and Miriam McCabe were escaped apartheid, and he came, and they got taken in by, you know, Dizzy wanted them to come here. And the first night he got to New York, he was on the bandstand playing with Dizzy opposite Monk. And then by the, you know, by the, he started to have success with Grazing in the Grass, and then he moved to California. And I'm just like, I'm not thinking you guys ever played together, but what, yeah. what, what, what's, what, what was your any 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 legacy that you think he has or anything at all that you can speak to about uh about you well no, not that you know i haven't worked with him or or been around uh any time that he was there i've never met him but i mean he did you know I, my first real was grazing in the grass was the first introdu introduction for me you know and uh uh, you know, I'm I'm not really aware a lot about you know not aware of him that that much. 
Right. No, I mean, he, of, uh, it was, uh, it was interesting. He lived a really, I mean, for, I think in my mind, I, I love, there's a pocket at a time where, uh, he was working with some Ghanaian, uh, uh, musicians and, uh, he was really, uh, connected, um, uh, to the, going back to the roots of his motherland and, and, and things like that. But I do say he was one of the few cats, uh, that was able to come from the motherland and have a successful musical career in the States. I mean, it, 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 there's no, Absolutely. he had a lot more bread than most people did. And he definitely partied a lot. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of guys in that band grazing in the grass and they made the hit. They'd walk in the supermarkets or the convenience stores was playing on the radio and then pretty soon they blew through all the money and they had to go back in the studio and make another album. But it was, they were, they, there was a lot of, a lot of hard partying and a lot of carnage. And, but I, you know, I, I, this is a, this is perfect as we move through the, you know, we're about 57% of the way through Ray Neapolitan's dynamic career as a musician and as an, as an entertainer. But I, I did want to spend a little bit of time about, you know, talking about a, uh, a group that you did have a chance to play with and specifically uh, Jim Morrison and the, and the doors and, and how that, how that worked for you. Um, that was, it was a great experience. Uh, I, I love that time. Um, you know, we, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was uh, Paul Rothschild. Uh, I had worked with Paul on some other projects, and he he pulled me into to the Doors project on Morrison Hotel, and um, you know it was the band. How can I explain this? Uh, it was a lot of fun playing with with Ray and and John and Robbie, uh, um, and uh, especially John. Uh, the drummer he, uh, and Robbie, uh, they were really jazz guys. They really loved they, they used to come to, to the jazz clubs and I'd see them at the jazz clubs all the time. And so they great. always loved <laughs> to play, you know, like especially big band for, for uh, Densmore, you know, uh, as it seemed to me. So, you know, the music was, was very simple, you know, and it was the feel that really got it going. And uh, the problem uh, with that is it was inspiring for the first four hours. <laughs> then you had to continue the same, you know, basically 12 bar song for, you know, another four hours or maybe another four days. Really? I remember doing, doing, going over and over like, you know, track 57, you know, take 59. Uh, that's what started wearing me down is that, uh, you know, we're used to, you know, running it down and getting it on your hands and then once, you know, usually, or maybe twice. And then the red light goes on and that's it. But when you're wait, waiting for that magic moment as, as per Paul Rothschild, um, and then all this action would go on and, you know, there was a rehearsal, or the Doors building there, right off Santa Monica and La Cienica, uh, where they had a, a little studio uh, and uh, it was basically a rehearsal area and they held their equipment there and everything. And we would rehearse there all the time. So, you know, you'd rehearse for, and Jim, Jim would never be there. 
so in rehearsal it would with the three four of us would would Ray uh, Robbie and John and mm-hmm. myself right and and we'd rehearse and we'd have it down and then take a break you know it would always be a long lunch break and then Jim would come in and start singing and everything sort of you know revolved around around Jim you know and and how he was feeling and what was going on and uh, so. You know, we we do a bunch of takes, and then Jim would say, "Come on with me. Let's walk down La Cienega and look at some of the the art show." At that time, there was a lot of art galleries on La Cienega, and he would love to go walk down there in the middle of all this. You know, he'd just say, "Stop," you know, and he'd take one of us with him. You know, uh, so I mean, it, that went on for I swear, it went on for nine months or more on that record. Okay, I just want to be clear about something. The, the more this is Morrison Hotel. Um, when I interviewed uh, Dave Bargeron from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, he was like, he said RCA would literally, when they were going in to cut an album, this is a, maybe th- two or three years after Morrison Hotel, but this is RCA on the East Coast. Literally, they'd, book, they'd block out a studio for two weeks. There'd be bowls of cocaine, couches, uh, and, and so that everybody was just in there partying and trying to f- work everything out. But was that the kind of, uh, I mean, it was endless budgets, and then therefore people like Ray had to go over this somewhat simplistic music. Who was the person who kept saying we got to do it again and again and again? And again? I mean, why did you have to keep doing all these tapes? It was Paul. It was Paul. the producer. Paul. Yeah. Why yeah. was he hung? He was looking for this this that thing that he would never find this perfect, perfect take or something. I mean, that's insane. I guess so, you know, uh, it, it is. And you're right. There was endless budgets. We, endless. we, and we would record right across on La Cienica. Um, I forget the studio down there. Uh, it was right at Santa Monica Boulevard in La Cienica. So we would just walk across the street. So yes, there, it, it was like that. It would we had the studio, I don't know, for months on end, uh, just total 24-hour block up. And, yeah, you know, I remember the couches. <laughs> you were right on, the couches. And and, uh, and all the, blo- you know, yeah. uh, the blow and pot and everything else was, was on, the, on the console. And there were people, you know, like women laying around. The joints were rolled. The women were there. I mean, yeah, this is like beyond, man. Yeah. And the thing was, the band didn't do anything. They were the cleanest of all. <laughs> <laughs> That's remarkable. That's remarkable. I mean, these guys, uh, you know, everyone thought that they were the wild guys, uh, you know, but they were the sweetest guys you ever wanted to meet. Well, I've interviewed Densmore, and, and he's, a, he, I mean, cr- I, I, to me, those guys looked like they were burning it on both ends, but it was really Jim that was drinking himself into a, was, an enigma. I mean, right, was, it was only Jim, yeah. And so, so Jim would show up, and then he, and then in truth, Rothschild would take what he considered to be the best cut, and then Jim would overdub vocals on that, or, or then you'd hit live, or I, I mean, this is bizarre. No, we involved. would do it live. We would we would do it live, uh, you know, and it, it, that's why we couldn't. You only sing it so many times, you know, and uh, then we would take these breaks and, and go for the walk or, you know, another <laughs> go for the walk, break, check out the like Warhol, the, the paintings going. <laughs> this is insane. So, cause like, cause that was the thing that was the revelation for me too, because 
uh, once David Clayton Thomas left Blood, Sweat, and Tears, they became like a full-on instrumental funk jazz band, and it's just some of the stuff is ferociously awesome. And but what was revelatory was that what they would do, and this kind of sounds like the Rothschild mental the methodology, but you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Again, it was a big band, but they'd they'd get everything. I mean, they'd have everything. Uh, they would not all be in the same room. Uh, the horns and the and the rhythm section and and the vocals they were all different, and essentially. They'd, they'd get it so that they'd play it a few times, not 55 times, but, you know, a few times, like a, a few times to get really warmed up so that, that when it was, when the red button was hit, they would hit and it would come and they'd be, they'd be cooking, but the horns would be separate. Everything was not, everything was not cut at the same time. And then eventually it was all mixed together. So that was the interesting thing where they'd warm up and get to the point where they were ready to hit. Right. And then they'd. And then they'd, um, and then they'd be ready to actually record the take. But it wasn't like the whole band was recording at the same time. On the flip side, Gordon Edwards is talking to me about a session that he did, where they had everybody hitting at the same time: string section on the third floor of a building, rhythm section on the second floor, horns on the bottom floor to to, to gain separation. So I mean, it all went in different ways. But you're telling me that the rhythm section, you Manzarek. Densmore and Krieger on the floor. Yeah. Okay, you'd be playing the 55 takes of the same tune, waiting for Jim to come in and actually hit the make, uh, cut the cut the cut the actual take. Yeah, exactly. Holy mama! And and I guess it was just like, hey, you got all this other, you got all these other wonderful distractions around, and and all this other stuff. So you're getting paid. So you know, I, we're gonna milk you guys for all. Yeah, and I mean, it was, and it was great fun. I mean, we it was, what can I say? You know, but it wore you again. It's just they wear you down, where you know, then you start making mistakes because you're you're not thinking anymore. Absolutely, think, dude. You're like, you know, this is like, no, you're, yeah. I mean, this is like insane. It's insane. But the idea was like when they when you first came in, uh, it was the idea that they were really looking to get a. a more of a punch on the on the actual album with the bass as opposed to the bass pedal that Ray just couldn't get that kind of punch. Well, yeah, for the records, they always hired a bass player for all the records. Mm. Live, they would Ray would play the bass, uh, you know. Uh, but there was always on all the records there was you know uh, there was a lot of guys uh, Jerry Chef, myself, uh, Leland Sklar, my man. Lee, yeah, dude, I mean, dude, but you know, dude, dude, chef, I'm so bummed. He's got like hearing loss now. I want to hang with that guy so bad, but he can't hear anything. Mm, that's so bad. Yeah, I love these. You shame. guys are freaking salt of the earth people, man. This is unbelievable mm. stuff. But I'm just saying, they. So you, mm. but really, you never toured with them. You got uh, no. I yeah. never toured with the door. I, I went to New York with them just to rehearse while they they did a show. Uh, and uh, but that's the only time I left town with them. Yeah. Wait, you went to rehearse and then you actually didn't even go on the bandstand when they played live? No, I, I, I'm just thinking about that now. I they're like, yeah, they're like Ray, come along for the hang, man. Come uh, all the way across the country. Yeah. Well, here's a story that uh, this was uh, right at Woodstock. So we're in the studio the week before Woodstock. Wow. And and Robbie and uh, and John said, Ray, come on, let's go next weekend to. To this big show that's happening in up upstate New York, <laughs> and I say, uh, you know, I gotta work Saturday. I can't go. 
So they go, and then when the movie comes out, there's there's John and Robbie, and, and Robbie right on the bandstand, you know, uh, uh, of Woodstock. And I went. I it was one thing I really, uh, really sorry that I didn't go. Hold on a second. I mean, they, they, was, they 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 were playing with like Alu Rock up there. I don't think they ever did the door. The doors didn't play at Woodstock. No, they didn't play. No, no. They, but they were just just hanging out. They were hanging. They were, they were hanging. This is unreal. Unreal. Band, you know, they were right there. Was so, that, wait, wait, yeah. hold on? Was that being live broadcasted too? And that's what you saw? No, it was in the movie later. In the movie later. Yeah. So if you ever see the movie again, you'll see John and, and uh, Robbie. Wow, that is so. <laughs> and so, you, so you actually took a pat. It might have been better I, off. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that was that, <laughs> wavy gravy was handing out breakfast. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's really just a. You know, I just before I let you before we wrap here on set three, um, did you ever play? Uh, I mean, the rhythm section for Barry White was was David T. Walker, Ed Green, and Wilton Felder. But did you wind up ever in a soul? I mean, we played that joint, uh, the the Frog Child funk. That was funk, but that was you guys went back and were playing jazz. I mean, were you ever in? a soul R&B studio session, not necessarily with Barry, but anybody, like you just went, maybe you never even got credit on the album for it because I don't know. I I see cats like Joe Osborne with like sometimes playing with these, like, you know, gospel, black gospel groups on Muir. I'm like, I'm like, did Neapolitan ever dive into that bag? Uh, You know, I, I, not really. Um, <laughs> not that. I mean, honestly, it, do, it doesn't matter because, I mean, everything else is just so freaking hot. That John Sebastian thing uh, blew me away. But Johnny Almond, I mean, Joe, let's just finish up. Joe Pass. Did you ever, did you hang right. with, did you hang with Joe? Yeah, Joe, we were friends, yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, love it. Italian guys. We used, to go, we used to go get meatball sandwiches together. Pasta, you know, pasta, like, great pasta, yeah. garlic. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. Man. And he was a you know such a mild mannered genius, really. Uh, uh, he was just wonderful. What can I say? And, and I mean, uh, I don't think we really appreciated him until after you know he was gone. What did those guys teach you about the the? the it was hard to say because because you were sort of. I mean, listen, you were paying. It was just bags and bags of budgets. Um, you know, you're in the studio, you're getting royalty checks, uh, you know. Um, but what what did you admire about Leonard Feather? I'm not, Feather might be Pass, Charlie Kennard, and I don't know. What, did, what was it about that jazz life that was inspiring to you? I know you were already doing it in Chicago, but what did those guys exude? Aside from like, you know, I mean, like Joe made an album from Synanon. I mean, a lot of those guys were junkies, Art Pepper, yeah. you know. But, like, aside from that, what was inspiring to you about that older guard? Well, uh, uh, how can uh, – let's see. Maybe how we can save I'd it like for, for part that. four if you want. I mean, it's fine with me. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was – even as, as, you know, when I was, like, 16 or something, I was all – you know, the, the beat mix and, and all that were – uh, at that time, all the poetry and, and I was always drawn to a lot of that. And, and then the, just the culture of, of jazz at, at the time was just, you know, I would 
go in there wide-eyed because I'd be just so fascinated uh, with with, uh, with the music and and the the lifestyle and uh, you know I, I may be romanticizing about it, but <laughs> it, it, it just. It's just fascinating. Yeah, right. You know, what was fascinating? Was it fascinating because it was not, it was just unpredictable? It was not, what was fascinating? What was, what was the... What well, the, it was, it, to me, it was like these guys are, are, are doing something totally different mm-hmm. than what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you've got to get a job, you got to do this, you know, and here <laughs> these guys threw all that away and were pursuing... The, you know their muse and and i thought that was just exceptional you know that that a person could devote his life to that you know uh, as far as studying and and uh just pressing forward you know for new discovery so uh, all the guys you know from from dizzy to miles to bird i mean how how more colorful can it be you know i mean these were, were giants to me uh more than you know any other idols i had did you um, see them I, I did you see them di- did you see them did you see gene not necessarily monk or or di- you know dizzy D- dizzy didn't or miles they didn't die uh did you see geniuses die broke a lot of them yeah you know, for sure. Yeah. You know, they they just um, they had no concept on how to you know to to run their lives outside of the music. You know, that was uh, another part of it that some of them uh, just you know uh, just couldn't handle real life. Right, which is the, you know, you look at the advent of handlers and managers and this and publicists, and it's like, it can be annoying with all the walls, but at the same time, you understand that if you're that deep into the art, I think that's the other part of it, even though I wasn't around for it, um, I just kind of would have looked back and said, damn, you know, those cats didn't, didn't they left this, this life without a dime to their name, but you know what? their legacy is going to live on so much longer after it, it their, will. And they didn't know that either, but somewhere in that, in this cycle of this cyclical nature, it's like in so many ways, this archive that I'm compiling and this, this sacred journey that I'm on at 39, I'm just feel like I'm just beginning. But at the same time, I also know I want this material to live on long after I'm gone so that cats can really dive into this stuff, and 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 I don't, I won't know at all. I won't even know, most likely. But that's mm. that to me was like the most powerful thing about these guys is they they laid it out there. Their music was recognized at the time. They lost a lot of their the, the peak of their careers in prison. They were addicted to drugs, but yet, even if they left without a dime to their name, that music will live on. And hold up, and it still does today, if not better than it did then. I mean, I think that that is something. I don't know if admire is the right word or just that's salvation, really. I mean, I, that's the way I look. It, at it is exactly, and it's true. And and you know, it, it was never about the money. That's the thing. Yeah, uh, it was about the art, and and uh, you know, especially when they were creating at that time with Dizzy and Bird. I mean. This was revolutionary. This kind of music, you know, how they're playing through the changes and and 
the instruments got better and technique got better and, and uh, recordings got better. Uh, it, it was it was just a, an incredible time. And I'm glad you're uh, sort of documenting all of it, for sure. Well, I just, yeah, I mean, before I let you go, I mean, this is like basically uh, something that, that I'm going to see if I can find it, and I'll leave you with this quote uh, as we wrap this up. But um, I was interviewing uh, uh, Tootie Heath uh, for the second time, and he said, let's see if I can find this here. I once asked Charlie Parker what he practiced. This is Tootie Heath. He goes, he told me he listened to the radio, and whatever was on there, you play with it, you figure out what key it's in, and you play with it some more. Once you've done that, you've crossed styles, you cross tonalities, you cross every element possible in music. I think that's very true. Now, I don't tell kids to practice what they hear on the radio today because they don't really listen to the radio now. Everything is online. They don't have the variety. Either you're listening to hip-hop or you're not. Justin Bieber, more pop music, and those kinds of people present another kind of music. This is the important part. That young people are interested in because it's attractive in the money that they make doing that music. They don't make any money imitating Ornette Coleman or John Coltrane. That's artistic. They don't make any money doing that. So that's the that's the, that's sort of my my mission is even if it impacts one to five to ten to fifteen thousand people, the idea of saying what is what are you doing it for? Are you are you playing music to touch hearts to move people, or are you doing it because of the superficial qualities of fame and fortune? That's what's happened in music. That's, I think, why you probably walked away at, a, at that time is this idea that it, it was never about the money, and now it's all about the money. And I think that that is that, – so for me, to be able to connect with guys that, are, that were really true artists and grew up at a time when, yeah, you wanted to get paid, but it, money – you were not being driven to be a musician because you, you wanted that, that fame – uh, that that to me is the, is is the uh, is the prescient point. Well, I I totally agree with you, um, uh, and that's yes, absolutely. Well, uh, it's all about the money. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's all about the money, my man. And uh, and and we just cooked here for it looks like another ninety five minutes. Uh, so we're. We're kind of getting into the seventh. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> we're getting into the seventh inning here, but we're not. The, we still have a few innings left, so um, uh, I'm going to send you that Rodby uh, thing from Don Ellis, right. and uh, and I'll get right. you a copy of this later. But uh, and then uh, much love, Neapolitan. You you know, uh, I'm I'm waiting on Estes and Morell any Thanks, any sir. day. Yeah, we'll, we're getting around to it. <laughs> You'll get some meatball we're sandwiches. I, I'm coming out pretty soon, man. So let's let's get you guys All on the right. bandstand, man. Absolutely. Much love, Ray, right. and uh, and uh, we'll talk Jake, real soon, man. It. Always, man. Later All on. Right. Bye, brother. Bye-bye. Bye. Set three in the books with Ray Neapolitan. We're not exactly done just yet, but we vetted Jim Morrison, and we vetted uh, the studio scenes and Emil Richards and Dave McKay and the Gong Show and a whole lot more, and uh, I'll be back tomorrow with Tommy Hamilton on the Jake Feinberg Show. Until then, peace. Peace.